0: Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unmound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to UnmoundRetreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Hey there, this is Nicole, the host and producer of the Found End Podcast. Oh my gosh, you guys, this is such a good episode. I have Dr. Mark Tonelli on this show. He is a critical care pulmonologist, um, but he also provides ethics consultations uh, at the University of Washington Medical Center. And what he has to say is super enlightening, especially for those of you who are listening, who listen and are in critical care. You're going to want to stay tuned because he offers some real gold. So stay tuned. Um, First, I just want to do a couple minutes of business. For those who want to skip ahead, you can. It'll be like skip ahead 3 minutes or whatever. Um, but I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in week after week. I have said this before, but I truly mean it. I couldn't do this show without you. There would be no Found Down community without you. So, I am just so grateful to each and every listener out there. Thank you for the shares. Thank you for the reviews. Thank you for just tuning in week after week. I just, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I really appreciate you. And I know I've been teasing a little bit about some cool stuff coming up. Well, one of the things, um, you know, I have my business, Unwound Retreats. Uh, It's a self-care for healthcare business where we practice self-care and learn and travel together. Um, I have launched the nurse's, retreat in Mexico in March of 2022. That's going to be a really fun yoga retreat in Sayulita, Mexico. Such a cool, chill surf town. Uh, just It's like 45 minutes worth of Puerto, Puerto Vallarta. But if you want to go, go to unwindretreats.com and there's you can sign up for the email list or you can see um, what's sort of in store for that retreat. It's going to be amazing and it's already filling up. So um, check it out if you want to go. Another thing that I'm working on with um, a licensed mental health care um, counselor, she's also a a psychiatric nurse practitioner. We're putting together a nurses support group. So, group therapy for nurses. Uh, I know a lot of you have been struggling out there uh, for good reason, because, goddammit, this has been really hard. Our jobs were already hard before the pandemic. So, if you're struggling, know A, you're not alone, and B, I've got something really cool in store. So if you're interested in learning more about getting involved with this nurses group therapy, um, go over to Unwound Retreats again and just um, email me at nicole at unwoundretreats.com and um, I'll keep you in the loop about what's going on. Also, this is not sponsored. Um, If, again, you are struggling, there is an organization out there called emotionalppe.org and they hook mental health professionals up with nurses for free to help support them through this hard time. So, if you're looking for a counselor, a therapist, um, if you need help, go over to un um, to sorry, go over to emotionalppe.org and um, check out what they have to offer. Again, it's free counseling for healthcare providers. So, seriously. Just remember, you're not alone, and if you, there's no shame in getting help. So, not, last but not least, I just want to mention the sponsor of the show. You've heard me talk about her before, Nicole Kupchik, CNS, an educator. She's got a ton of products and resources out there for nurses at her website, nicolekupchikconsulting.com. She's got courses like Cardiac Bootcamp, which I took and loved. Um, she's got mechanical ventilation, hemodynamic monitoring, a delirium prevention course, and um, a l- lot of like certification review courses. And through all these courses, you can get CEs, which we need for our licenses. But if you want to go over to her website, nicolekupchickconsulting.com, check it out. You can use the code FOUNDOWN20 at checkout to get 20% off. Again, you can get 20% off by using the coupon code FOUNDOWN20 at checkout. That's it, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you. And um, this episode, oh, so good. Such an honor to have Dr. Mark Tanelli on the show. Let's get to it. Well, hello, and welcome to the found podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and I'm really excited to have our guest on the show today because I'm talking to Dr. Mark Tonelli. He's an intensive intensivist and pulmonologist at the University of Washington Medical Center, as well as a member of their ethics consultation service. I'm bringing Dr. Tonelli on the show to discuss how he approaches ethical dilemmas in critical care. But before we do any of that, how are you? (laughs) Um, How are you really?
1: Yeah, like, like everybody hanging in there, I think is, uh, is the, you know, is the, is the general response. Um, doing, doing okay. I feel like, um, yeah, um muscling through, but trying to find some space for other activities and um, venturing out and then trying to stay dry. Cause uh, as you know, it's raining like crazy here and I bike to work. So
0: well, I didn't know that you bike to work.
1: Yeah. It's actually, it's a, it's a nice way to help keep you sane, although not dry. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You have to have all like the booties and the, I don't know, all of it. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. The, the rain gear is more expensive than the bike. And as one of my colleagues, Andy Lux likes to say, there are days like today though, where it's rain gear irrelevant. It doesn't matter that you still come in, you know, soaking wet, but.
0: Yeah. Well, Yes. Yes. And I don't know if the listeners will be able to hear, but it is really pouring buckets out there. So, um, look gotta love the Northwest. That's awesome. That's awesome that you write to work though. It's a great way to take care of yourself. Can you, um, describe kind of what your role is at the university?
1: I wear, um, I wear several hats. I'm, as you mentioned, uh, in the division of pulmonary and critical care medicine. So I attend on ICU services like the medical ICU and the surgical ICU. Um, and then also do, uh, primarily outpatient, um, pulmonary at both Northwest and, um, and Mott Lake. And then I'm the section head for pulmonary and critical care here at the Mott Lake campus. And as you mentioned, and I think what we're going to talk about today is I'm also a member of the ethics consultation service. So, um, that's a totally different activity.
0: Yeah. Gosh, I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, but what's your favorite part? You think
1: of the, of those roles of
0: all of them? Yeah.
1: I, I think my favorite part is that I don't have just one role. I think that's the that to me is the key. Is you know, at any given time, I, I you know, if I'm on the ICU, I usually am happy to be on the ICU and happy to go off the ICU service. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> if I did any of them all the time, I think uh, that would be much more challenging. So I, I really personally I like the mix and that's a big advantage to this um, academic position. and even the times where you know I can devote myself to this, you know, teaching or to the ethics side of things. Um, I also teach a class on the humanities and medicine to medical students and graduate students um, in the winter quarter so I get to wear kind of my professor's hat. So all I, I really like all of all of them. Um, in the doses that I get them in, <laughs> I yeah. wouldn't let like any of them if I had to do it hundred percent of the time.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's awesome way to diversify yourself. And by the way, I'm just going to say you are my favorite attending. Yes.
1: Oh, you said that's all the attendings. I know.
0: That's not true. <laughs> that is not true. For the p- folks out there, Mark has a very deadpan humor and, um, I appreciate that. So <laughs> it's good to find humor in the darkness. Um, mm-hmm. It's not always dark, but how did you decide to go? You have an MA and a master's in ethics, right? Yes. How did you decide to even get involved with that? Like, what was it that drew you to that this realm?
1: So my my undergrad, going back to my undergraduate days, my background's in philosophy. I was my undergraduate major. Um, I'm not a scientist. And uh, so all along the way, I wanted to get back into doing... um, you know, uh, philosophy essentially. And in, in medicine, especially back in the late eighties and early nineties, um, you know, philosophy and medicine was basically bioethics and medical ethics. And it was an interesting time. It was, um, the specialty was developing, um, you know, as a, as an independent, um, uh, area of expertise. And so when I came up here for fellowship, I did my residency training in San Francisco. And when I came up here for fellowship, I, um came up expressly interested in doing some advanced ethics training with um at the time it was Al Johnson in the department of at that time it was medical history and ethics um and Nancy Jecker who also headed up the graduate program there and and the um department and the division were very supportive of that. So while I was a fellow I got my master's in medical ethics. Um, and then started doing ethics consultation even still as a fellow, um, and have just continued to do it all along the way.
0: Very cool. Now, as your role as a member of the ethics consultation service, what what does that look like? And is there a systematic approach for how you kind of go through an ethical dilemma, per se? Yeah.
1: So, the condol service is a you know, is a group of people um, with advanced training in ethics, um, but come from a wide variety of disciplines. Not, uh, you know, not all MDs, but nurses, you know, social workers. There's there's a wide variety of folks who who take on that role, um, and we're on call like any other consult service. Um, and uh, there are folks at Harborview at at the both the um, UWMC campuses. Um, And all of this is headed by Denise Totensky, who's also the head of the bioethics and humanities department. So, so yeah, we get, we get a call as a group. um, We do have a a standard approach that actually goes back to Al Johnson, who I mentioned was the head of the um, department back in the day. And Al developed, helped with some others, developed an approach to clinical ethics consultations. It's often called the four box method Um, for those who are, Who are interested in sort of um, philosophy? It's actually a casuistic or a case based approach to ethics. And it differs from what a lot of people think about in terms of medical ethics, where they think about principles, you know, four principles and conflict between principles. The the approach we take is much more based on specific cases. Um, And uh, the the methodology is to look at previously defined aspects of each case. So those four boxes are, you know, the medical indications for treatment, the patient preferences, which include patient goals and values, and then quality of life issues. And then a bigger box is sort of contextual features, which can be religious, legal, um, cultural, um, those types of issues that go in. And so with each case, we approach them and we look at those four topic areas and kind of try to flesh things out. And, and what, comes from the case-based reasoning is that the decisions are really made about specific cases. There aren't rules that are applied. Um, and again, we tend not to define this as a, like a battle of principles between, you know, oh, autonomy and beneficence. I mean, there's sometimes those issues are there, but that principalism doesn't really solve the problem of the specific case. So so that's an approach we we all take and uh, you know it has the added benefit that it was really largely developed here um although it's used in many other places it's not that we're the only folks using it.
0: Hmm. So let's say you're on the consultation service and you get asked to review a case. Does this is like tell me a little bit about that. Does that like is it all encompassing for a while you sort of like wearing like an investigator hat and to like understanding like the background of what's happening and all the parts cuz i feel like, you know, we have so many we can have very complicated situations and, um, yeah. What does that sort of look like for you?
1: So I think it's important to know here that, that anybody can call an ethics consultation. So it's not, it's not like you need the attending physician or even any physician to do it. Um, sometimes we get called by nurses, social workers, we've been called by family members and even by patients themselves. Um, and you know, sometimes you'll get a call and it'll be a pretty, it may be a relatively simple question, uh, you know, kind of a logistical question or maybe um, an ethics question that's more general and really not case specific that somebody really just sort of said, oh, this raised this issue for me and I just wanted to run it by. Um, and so you can do a little education, but then, if it's going to be a really formal consult. And like you said, there are these um, very complicated um, cases often with patients who've been in in the hospital for a long periods of the time. Um, then, yeah, we do it like any other consultation. So, um, or maybe more involved. So, you know, reviewing the patient's chart, understanding what's going on there, meeting with the relevant, or at least discussing um, the case with the relevant medical teams, um, with the nurses, with other people who are involved in the care, and then. Almost always we see the patient, um, talk with the patient if we can, but in ICU cases, that's not always the case. And talk to the surrogates when, you know, family members and other surrogates when that's relevant. And so really try to, yeah, delve into the entire case. And sometimes the issue is trying to figure out what the issue is, you know, Mm -hmm. what the because sometimes you get a call and it's just like this isn't working for us, right? <laughs> for somebody, you know, and help me figure out why this isn't working for us. So sometimes it's helping define what is the question, what are people worried about, what is there really an ethical issue here, um, and then sometimes it's it's you know um, helping people communicate with one another, whether that's conflict between medical teams or conflict between patients and families, or sometimes between patient patients and their families, or patients and families and the medical team. Um, and sort of helping uh, sometimes to facilitate that. And sometimes identifying other resources that the um, team may not have tapped into yet. Um, and then there's often um, an educational component as well. But in the end, with these cases, we gen- we will write a note and we will, uh, you know, when appropriate, make recommendations or suggestions or, um, yeah. and. And try to help move care forward, like any other consultative service would do. Mm-hmm.
0: So it's really up to the primary team or the 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 team, like I don't know, the ICU team or what, whichever team to to move forward with those recommendations.
1: Yeah, it's not. We're not. You know, these are difficult cases. There's often, you know, appropriate disagreements around what the best way to move forward is. Um, Sometimes we can just answer, you know, sometimes we can just help and answer questions and say, yes, what you're doing is ethically appropriate and, and um, continue to do that. Or here's another approach to this question that you might want to take, you know, or here are some things that you need to do to, to help sort this out. But yeah, we're not taking over the management of any aspect of the patient care. And I guess that's one thing. And, you know, sometimes other consultative services will come in and own a problem. We don't, you know, we we work through the, the team and, and with the patient and with the family. And sometimes, sometimes our role is really, um, you know, hopefully a neutral and um, objective uh, um, contributor to the dialogue. And and we often do get called when when dialogue between patients and and providers. Um, our patient families and providers have kind of gone off the rails and there's a lack of trust. And so trying to, trying to help reestablish that um, sometimes is a major part of what we're doing, but we're not owning a problem. We're, we're advising.
0: Yeah. And I think you said this, but you'll oftentimes meet with the families or meet with the physicians or whoever's involved to sort of understand what it is that the, what the problem is. Yeah. Yeah. And it,
1: and it, so in almost all cases we'll meet, we'll at least discuss with, you know, obviously the matter, you know, somebody from the medical side and then somebody from the, either the patient or the patient's family. Um, I mean, there are occasionally issues that are just maybe, you know, um, conflicts or um, between different medical providers or that we might not be dealing with the family, but for the most part, yeah, we're going to be engaged with the patient and the, and the family as well. And then, and not surprisingly, we work pretty closely with other services you might imagine who were also involved, like the palliative care service is very often involved in some of these cases. And if they're not involved um, uh, many of the times, that's one of our early recommendations. And so there are certain, you know, groups of folks that we, we work with and we, you know, Uh, are often very heavily engaged with social work um, in terms of working with the family and family dynamics.
0: Do you mind? I mean, I think it's clear to me, but do you mind for the audience out there just explaining like why it would be important to get the palliative care service involved?
1: Well, for many of these cases, it it is case specific, like we talked about. Um, But for many of these cases, they do deal with end of life issues um, and often I would say, you know, sort of the most, one of the most common kind of classes of consults we get are conflicts around, you know, end of life care um, and the types of care that are gonna be provided or should be provided um, in those situations. And it can go, you know, it can, it can um, come in different forms. Um, often it's, you know, the medical team feeling that the, the, um, the patient or the family no longer has realistic goals of care. Um, and is insisting upon interventions that aren't medically appropriate. Um, It also goes the other way. There are times where I have, you know, where we see medical teams who are very frustrated by a patient um, who, for a wide variety of reasons, may not be wanting to accept what is considered, you know, appropriate medical care or what is being recommended or being strongly um, advocated by the medical team. And so those, and these are often around, kind of, you know, end of life issues or, or chronic issues. And either way, the palliative care service is often very helpful. They can be helpful to come in and help clarify goals of care. Um, they can also, you know, often address um, alternatives for patients and families to, you know, um, the type of care that the medical team is either recommending or not recommending. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's
0: really important in terms of at least okay. clarifying goals and, what the patient actually wants. And, and are you able, and you may not be able to talk through like a ethical case in a non violating HIPAA kind of way. Um, I, if not, it's okay. I can No, I mean, out. we don't have
1: to use specific cases. I mean, I can, I can say um, as I did, as I did, we, it's not infrequent for us to get um, consults where, um, you know, uh, a patient came in with an understanding that they were going to get you know care with a goal of getting better right and leaving an icu and, and going home and having some meaningful quality of life you know meaningful to them quality of life and we get to a point where um from a medical perspective that goal is no longer reasonable And reasonable I mean it's, it's not achievable <laughs> right so it's the idea that here we've been focused on this goal and this goal is no longer achievable and yet the patient and or the patient's family doesn't seem to acknowledge that. And, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to approach that? So that that's a fairly common scenario. Um, And I think it's helpful too, that at this institution, um, uh, we have policies around these kinds of issues that basically help. And so a lot of times, again, our role may be education in terms of, well, here's, here's the policy and here's Um, here's the ethical background to the policy. Now, we are not, we do not require physicians, uh, nurses, um, other healthcare providers to, you know, do things that are medically inappropriate. Um, And so here's how we define that, you know, and let's look at this particular case and what are we talking, what things are we talking about that may be medically inappropriate? Are they really medically inappropriate? Does everybody agree with that? Um, And then what are the alternatives and, and, um, how can we uh, help everybody going forward so that, the, again, the, the, the family, the patient, the family are not losing trust and are um, feeling like, you know, their, their needs are still being addressed and met um, and then help them understand that, the, you know, we need to change our approach to goals of care, that the, the previous goals that we'd all agreed on are no longer achievable. So that means we have to reassess. And again, this is a place where palliative care is particularly helpful. So that's, that's not an uncommon scenario, particularly when we're talking about ICU scenarios. I and mean, we get called about you know, outpatient cases though, and um, cases on the acute care service um, as well. So not all of these cases are, are end of life, but the ones I think that ICU providers are going to be most familiar with are, are, are those, you know, people who yeah. are really at the end of life and are running out of um, therapeutic options.
0: Yeah. Do you ever, are you ever concerned or do you ever worry about any of like the legal ramifications of your, I guess, of your practice in, in the consultation service, like as an ethic in that role, in that role? Or are you sort of like, I mean, you're just, you're making recommendations, right? They're not necessarily like you must do this.
1: Yeah. And I think that the, you know, so the relationship between ethics and the law in my very cynical approach is that there's tends to be very little, um, yet there's overlap in these, um, in these issues, right. That a lot of these issues have legal elements to them as well. Right. You know, so, and I think that's what you're bringing up is like, you know, everybody's trying to, you know, one of the ways to think about ethics kind of, consultation is, look, we're all trying to do the right thing and do the right thing by this particular patient. And ethics consultation may be helpful to try to figure out what that right thing is and how we, mm-hmm. and how we do that. Um, but, you know, we're talking, if we're talking about, you know, limiting care or not offering care or trying to, you know, the other alternative, trying to, you know, have a patient receive care that they're saying that they don't want, right. You know, um, yeah. there can there are these legal ramific, you know, legal issues. We also, you know, I remember a case relatively recently that was really a question about a patient who wasn't fully ambulatory and, you know, what degree of assistance was required, you know, um, you know, uh, for that patient. Um, and, and if you, didn't provide all the assistance that the patient wanted. Was that somehow like a form of restraint, right? And that's a legal mm. issue, if you're, you know, restraining patients. So, so there's often a legal overlap, and we will generally lead with we are not lawyers and we are not providing legal advice. At the same time, there's sometimes just a good legal under, you know, we can help people with legal understanding, right? There's a state law about you know, which surrogate, if you don't, if you don't have a durable power of attorney for healthcare, which family member or, you know, relation or now friend is, you know, the appropriate surrogate decision maker. And so sometimes we can be helpful just educating around that it's a legal issue, but it's pretty straightforward. And it's, you know, a statutory point. Um, same with decisions about which what patients who don't have a surrogate, what our legal obligations are there. And if it's really a Uh, a legal issue then sometimes we engage with the attorney general's office right who are the lawyers for the institution and it's not infrequent that there will be a case that involves you know ethics and the ag's office risk management's another you know they usually are getting looped in by this time as well and so um sometimes we'll get a call for an ethics consult from risk management um Mm. uh for for instance, so yeah, I, you're you're absolutely right to say these things overlap. Um, and how do you stay out of the you
0: know, yeah. not in the
1: business of offering legal advice? And we need to sort of say we're not here to offer legal advice. That, yeah. that being said, we all of the FS consultants have a pretty good understanding of the kind of basic statutory, um, you know, uh, elements that are that are relevant to many of these cases, right? Yeah how surrogate decision-making is supposed to happen for <laughs> the surrogates right yeah.
0: mm. like i keep the reason I, i'm sort of asking this question too it's like you know i've i have a like a sort of a case in mind years ago and it will be obviously there'll be no hipaa violation here but um like someone decided that this person shouldn't be resuscitated or be a full code or Get CPR, you know, um, and I'm sh- pretty sure that the consultation service or that the the um, governing team like asked for an ethics consultation in that regard and like not doing CPR, but the family like asking for us to do CPR in the moment, like those sort of scen- scenarios go like, God, are they going to do or would they, you know, um, come back at us for not providing something that they asked for when medically that's not, wasn't deemed necessary, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think there's always that, you know, there's often that concern. I think we shouldn't be overly um, guided by that, that concern. Um, you can get, you can, you the U S you can get sued for doing the right thing, you know? And so I um, can see you for anything. So it's, I don't want it, you know, people to get too bogged down in that. Yeah. Um, but at the but at the same time, yeah, there are those those issues in people's minds. And I think this is again, this is a good place where you can say, well, this is our policy, right? And our, our institutional policy meets um, you know, legal muster. It was approved by, you know, went through the AG's office as well. And so you say, well, so that's one of those issues where it's important that we're following policy, right? It's an, it's important that we're addressing this. And we may come down to the to a decision, you know, that we're saying we're not gonna, we as an institution, um, are not gonna provide a service even when a patient is, or family is requesting it because it's not appropriate. And we've, you know, sort of followed the, the policies and that's that's um, perfectly appropriate and, and obviously legal. It doesn't mean somebody still can't sue you, they still can, but you've, you know, you're, you're on firm Legal and ethical ground in those situations, and so I, I and I think it's much. It is important that these are not arbitrary decisions, and are not you know capricious decisions being made by you know single providers and things like that. The other thing in terms of resuscitation for your audience in particular that I always think is important to realize is that you know these ethics around you know code for somebody being a full code just because somebody is a full code doesn't mean that the medical team is obligated to do CPR for, even to start CPR, to do it for any length of time. It does for the nurses, right? That the, the mm-hmm. It does mean that you're obligated, you know, the bedside nurse is obligated to start the emergency protocols, you know, that are, um, that we're all familiar with that, you know, call the code, start, um, you know, start CPR. But from a, you know, from a medical decision-making standpoint, um, we, the, the medical team decides when CPR is no longer effective and when it's going to be stopped. Right. And, and so we don't ask families permission. I mean, you certainly don't, I can't ask the patient's permission for that, like in the mid mm-hmm. end of things. Um, and sometimes you can make that decision before you start, right. That, that this, that, that this resuscitation is not going to be effective mm-hmm. knowing what's going kind of the case and we can stop, you know, even before we start. And that Understanding is what goes into this this idea of saying, telling patients' and families, we will not do CPR in this setting because we know already that it's not going to be effective, right? We're not, um, and we, and just like we, you know, get to points where we can say, well, we can't do a transplant because we know it's not going to be effective, or we can't give any more chemotherapy because it's not going to be effective, right? There are multiple places in medicine where we get to, and we just say, even if families are insisting or really asking for, you know, a different level of care, ECMO, you know, in this particular patient, this is not medically appropriate. And we, we don't do this, right. And we won't do this. And that holds for CPR as well. Um, but again, it's important that, that we all um, have examined that. We all agree that it's medically inappropriate. Um, and that we communicate to the, that to the family. So the other part of this policy is like, you don't just make somebody you know, no code or decide you're not gonna do a medical intervention and not communicate that to the patient or the family. It's a, it is a re- ethical requirement that you, that you tell them that, and that you give people an opportunity to question it. And, um, but that doesn't mean, it's, at that point, it's not a recommendation. It's not like we're not recommending this anymore. It's like, we're not, we don't do this, um, right? And we won't do this. And here are the reasons we won't do it. Here are the reasons we can't do a transplant. Here are the reasons that your loved one is not an ECMO candidate. Here are the reasons why we can't give any more chemotherapy. And here's the reasons why we're not gonna start CPR, right? So all of, those, um, all of those things need to be communicated with patients and their families.
0: Yeah, it's that's um, really interesting. I I hadn't really thought about it from that point. I mean, I've seen that happen where where providers will say like we're not going to do CPR um, because essentially it's not. I mean, it's not going to do anything, right? Like you're not going to live. Like your your loved ones already dying, but it, if. And I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I it feels like people could have those conversations more. You know, sometimes for us it feels a little distressing to know, like, oh God, this patient is full code and they're they're at the end of their life. And we know that like doing CPR on this like 80-year-old woman is like not gonna be mm-hmm. a nice thing to do, you know? But um I don't know if we knew like, okay, well maybe we could have like a more proactive conversation with provider about like, you know, what's the utility in this. And just the idea of you, Mark saying like, just because we are a full code doesn't mean we're obligated to do CPR is honestly really refreshing.
1: Well, and I, I do think it's important. I think it's again, important if we're not going to do that, that we want to, communicate that with patients and families we're not being duplicitous right we're not going oh yeah tell everybody we're full code but i mean you 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 probably remember um the days and sometimes they still pop up right where this idea of a show code like well we'll do this but we're not going to do it very long or slow code right i'll do this we just won't do it very well like that those are terrible and they're ethically inappropriate and so we, we don't want to be in those places and if you're think and if people are thinking about those things that's really a situation where we probably shouldn't be coding somebody at all i do think we need to be proactive i think there's a lot of misunderstanding on the part of providers physicians nurses um that, you know, somehow if a family if families insist that somebody's full code, that means we have to do CPR, that that's maybe some legal thing or you know, and family members do this too. I've had them say this to me. They're like, Well, if I tell you to do this, you have to do this. And the answer is no. <laughs> it's actually not that's not a legal requirement, right? Um, you know, we on the medical side are not provided to to do somebody asks for a heart transplant because they're they're loved one broke their heart that's not an indication and we're not going to do it right and I don't care how badly you want it um so there it's recognizing that there are limits to what patients and families can demand in terms of medical care um and and again I often think good communication is really the key to this which is you know it's not that we're um often the advice we're giving on the ethics side is to lead with the lead with the positive lead with what we're doing for a patient. So it's often not that, you know, that, we're saying somebody's going to be no code and that means they're going to, we're, we're saying they're going to comfort measures only, right? It's just that it's the idea that, look, we're doing, we're doing everything we possibly can do. This person is intubated, ventilated on multiple pressors. They're getting antibiotics. They're getting dials. They're getting all of this therapy. We're doing everything we can. We may be doing everything we can to try to give them any chance of getting out of the ICU, but if they arrest, they're not going to ever leave the ICU. And so we're not going to do CPR in that setting. And I think, explaining that often to, to patients and families is helpful to say, look, this is another medical intervention and, and we only do it when it's appropriate. But there's misunderstanding on the part of physicians and, and nurses, this idea that, well, no, I just have to ask, right? Because it's a weird thing, the CPR in particular, where it's like, I'm obligated to ask this question, but I just I just ask it. And I just throw it out there and they say yes or no and I check the box and then we're obligated to follow it that's not how it works it, it's and we don't do that with any other you know interventions we explain risks and benefits and we and and frankly if something's not medically appropriate we don't offer it and then say it's not medically appropriate we are kind of obligated to <laughs> we are kind of obligated to do that with CPR. I mean, I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen where people are like, well, we could do this surgery, but it's really not appropriate. I want the surgery. And then the surgeons are like, well, no, I didn't really mean to offer it. (laughs) I was just like, threw it out there as a hypothetical. So you you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, we don't want to do that. We want to be, you know, clear that you know, if, if something's not medically beneficial, there's no chance that it's going to be successful. It's medically inappropriate. And we don't, we don't offer it. And I think people get, it's hard. Like you can have this conversation and then somebody will go in to talk to the family and still say, well, we don't recommend it. And it's like, that's not what we were saying, right? We're saying we're not going to do it because it's not medically appropriate. So, but if you put it in the terms, like if, if, if you're, if you're, you know, recommending and it, it makes it sound like it's that anything you're not recommending. At least it sounds like the alternative is at least appropriate. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Like, was <laughs> like, yeah, it's you brought, like you still it like a
0: choice in there, you know, right. like I don't recommend it, but it's still an option. That's yeah. what it feels like.
1: Exactly. And you've got to have to be careful about these. Sometimes that that's a lot of times that's the appropriate place, right? Where are like, well, we might recommend it, but you know, or not recommend it, but you could choose either way you know, and that's fine. And people make choices um, about those kinds of things all the time, you know, um, uh, and, and the vast majority of conversations, that's, a, that's a good way to have shared decision-making, right? Like we're talking about, you know, reasonable options, but we don't throw out, you can't put, you don't put things on the list that aren't medically appropriate. It doesn't make sense to bring those into the conversation. And again, we're obligated around some things like CPR to, to, to still have that discussion and explain why it's not medically indicated because people understand CPR and there's this whole thing around code status. It's a weird order, right? You have to write a do not resuscitate order for it not to happen. Um, so we are obligated to, to talk about it, but we're not obligated to offer it. And we're not obligated to, you know, if a, if a patient or a patient's family says that they want any medically inappropriate therapy, that does not mean we're required to provide it.
0: that I I'm I'm just I don't know I'm I'm uh like I'm just so grateful that you said all said that and um for me as you know someone in critical care what, you know for a long time like, I don't know, I've been doing IC nursing for like 13 years it's just nice to t- talk about in that in that sort of realm because um you know I think we, sometimes have a lot of fear around, like you know what are what are we supposed to do and what's the right thing to do and um to it's just it's like for lack of a better word it's nice to hear you say that (laughs) like it just it's it's like you know it just feels like such a sticky wicket a lot of times but it's just nice to hear like we really shouldn't be offering things to people. Um, if it's, I mean, it's not in my, I mean, obviously I have to perform CPR. I'm not going to make the decision not to, it's obviously on for the physicians to make that decision. Right. But like to have those conversations around it, um, is be able to, is a nice idea.
1: Well, and I think this often, it's not infrequent at ethics consult, it may be them. It may be I don't, I don't have the statistic, but often it's bedside nurses that are calling ethics consults. let just say that. And I think it is this position where you're, where you're like, wait a minute. I, I don't know either what we're doing or what we're talking about doing, or, you know, doesn't seem right. <laughs> you know, again, coming back to this idea that ethics consultation is, you know, we're all trying to get it right. And, and um and so I think that sense that what, you know, what we're doing here or what we're talking about doing here doesn't seem right is important. And, and you know, I strongly, obviously, at this institution, you know, I think nurses are you know, hopefully feel as empowered as I think that they are to, you know, engage with these with these big primary questions you know um is cpr you know is cpr appropriateness as well is what we're doing here is this medically appropriate um and and bedside nurses you know are there all the time having to deal with the patient and the and the patient's family and they often feel this distress um uh, you know appropriate moral distress if if they think that what we're doing that the entire endeavor is is not right right and it's not right by the patient. and so i i strongly encourage the you know, anybody who's taking care of a patient to engage the rest of the team and the attending physicians and the physicians who are taking care of those patients. Um, When that sense comes up, right? The first thing you should do is talk with the other members of the care team. Um, And and there are times where I think, um, you know, I can remember multiple times coming in where um, nurses or physicians are feeling some distress about care and you come to the conclusion in the conversation with everybody that, no, it's, yeah, I, it's hard, but it's appropriate, right. That what we're doing is appropriate and everybody gets on the same page. And sometimes that's just a matter of improving the communication between often sub-specialists who know more than what we do. Right. And they're like, Oh no, there's actually a reasonable chance that, that, that this is going to be successful. Right. You know, um, right. you're like, Oh, okay. Well that that's helpful. Cause we were all just, you know, we, none of us uh, sense that. So but I think the first thing, again, that, you know, if you feel a sense of distress that what we're doing is not right is to have a conversation with the, with the team. And then if that doesn't go well and, it's, and things don't resolve, then that's a good time to think about calling it an ethics consultation. Um, and, you know, sometimes we come in and, and too, and you just say, yeah, this sucks. Um, it's, you know, what we're doing, we're going to keep doing. And it's like it's it doesn't feel the best, but it's not wrong. And, you know, and it's hard for everybody. Right. Um, yeah. And there are plenty of those cases that you and
0: I can both recall. Right. Mm-hmm. Where, like, mm-hmm.
1: This doesn't feel. This doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What do you think? Um, and you may have already answered it just now, but what do you think we should um, learn? A, well, gosh, I might cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> Your, okay, that's okay, your, well, your, your prerogative. It's, it's my program. No, I don't know. Um, I was going to say, what should we? What should we learn about ethics, or what should we? What are some takeaways we should have um, as providers who? Who? I mean, as healthcare providers who work with patients um, in regards to ethics. You think?
1: I mean, I think one of the things that's important to realize is like every case that we deal with is, has ethical, um, there are ethical issues in every single case that we have, right. Cause we're always trying to align, you know, care with patients' goals and values and, and, you know, balancing these basically, you know, quality of life issues and, um, into it and so there's always ethical issues it's just that most of the time they line up pretty nicely with the medical issue (laughs) with with medically appropriate care and everybody's on board and we all agree that the goals are you know um reasonable and potentially achievable and so we all we all line up and um so we're just recognizing that everything we do um you know has an ethics component and that when um when things start just feeling wrong and even if we can't articulate articulate why they're wrong that often is because there's this this there's an now an ethical conflict or there's um confusion around you know the the goals and values lining up with the actions that are being taken or choices that are being made and um yeah and that that's a and that, that's a reasonable time to call for an ethics, you know, consult and, and, um, you know, talk through some of these, talk through some of these issues. Sometimes it's just a matter, again, like I think I said at the beginning, sometimes the ethical ethics consult is coming in to say, what is the actual ethical issue here? Everybody feels oh. funny about this. Nobody likes it. Um, it's bothering people, but like, is there an ethical issue that, that's the sticking point? And if so, what is it? And then maybe that will, that once we elucidate that that will help us you know clear it up so yeah it's just the recognition there's nothing about you know there aren't like some cases that are that have ethics components to them and and the rest of them don't you know the good news is that most of the time we're dealing with we're all dealing with these ethical issues all the time and we're quite savvy with them and um, they line up pretty nicely and we don't need a consultant to come in to help with that but on occasion, um, you know, we do, and I, and again, what I like about this institution, anybody can, anybody at any time can reach out and, you know, ask for those, that input.
0: Super cool. Do you have any last close, closing thoughts for the show?
1: Um, no, I think the other thing about um, having such a great group of ethics consults at this institution. Um, Just to take advantage of uh of them uh, on the educational side as you know we've had tried to have the icu education conference and built-in ethics um discussions on kind of a monthly basis there um you know i um i i really feel like sometimes the best part of the ethics consultation job is not coming in and writing recommendations about a particular case, but just the educational side of things, talking about these issues, you know,
0: because mm-hmm.
1: um, because everybody's thinking about them. And, you know, it's not like, um, it's, it's very rare that I find people that just don't want to discuss these, you know, the, these, are, these are issues that we all have to deal with on a fairly regular basis. And so that educational component can be really helpful. And I think You know, I hope people who listen to this podcast will say, oh, yeah, you know, some of these are interesting thoughts. Um, There are other cases that I've had or other situations that I've found troublesome um, and finding folks to talk about those um, things or bringing them up in a way that we can, you know, incorporate them into one of our educational conferences. We're always looking for cases to discuss. And every time I think that I've been doing it, because I've been doing ethics consultation now for Twenty-five years, and every time I'm like, I've heard them all, and then I'll get a call. I mean, literally three times this year already, I've gotten cases where I'm just like, Well, I never heard that one before. You know, that's (laughs) that's a that's a good one. That's um, so so. They're they're out there. They're always um, yeah, and there's always something new. And but the great thing about working in these institutions is that there are a tremendous amount of resources and a large number of people who you know. Have special expertise and who are devoted to, you know, not only intervening in individual, ca- helping in individual cases, but also educating more broadly. Um, yeah. So take advantage of
0: it. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I am just, I'm so delighted that you came on the show to talk about, um, what it's like to be on the ethics cons- consultation service and sort of, um, opportunities for us to get involved, um, or, you know, to bring up like ethics, ethics consults, um, you know, can be requested by the nursing staff. And I think that's just fantastic. Um, and, and thank you for encouraging, um, communication and conversation around these sort of difficult issues. And it's funny, you're right. Like we all, we all know, like this, something's weird about this. Something feels <laughs> off about this. Like, what is it? You know, and you're right. A lot of it is something's not right. Um, I love the idea of uh, you're you're always wanting to do the right thing, right? So that's a nice guiding principle, guiding light. Sort of on the topic of light, <laughs> what is bringing you light in these? We're <laughs> like months, twenty like in whatever 21 in the pandemic.
1: You're still counting. Yeah. Yeah. I I just want to reiterate that I do think um, it's really important in these situations to always try to take, I start with taking a step back and to say, everybody's trying to do the right thing. Like some horrible things happen when everybody's trying to do the right thing. But the idea at least look, everybody's trying to do right by the patient, the family's generally trying to do right by the patient, the provider's generally trying to do right by the patients and we're all trying to do right. And yet there's a, conflict or there's confusion or there's a sense that it's not right and but but at least start with that in that place and it's and it's helpful and then in terms of yeah what what I think we're all I think what we're all starting to realize over the last several months I think at least I hear more and more people realizing is like oh this idea that we were going to muscle through you know I mean we're going to get through the the initial thing this will be over it's going to end when it ends then we'll get back to normal and now it's just recognizing that this isn't gonna end it's just gonna you know this virus is going to become endemic and we're just we're dealing with this and we're you know now we're busy with everything else too i mean this place is hopping. and um and i do think it's the it's changing the mindset from you know, survival, um, let's all get through, push through this, whatever this was going to be and however this long, long this was going to be to like, we need to have a sustainable approach to, you know, <laughs> to, to a lot of things, to how we provide care, but also individually, we all need to find a sustainable way to, um, you know, move forward. And for me, it, like coming back to the very beginning, I really just appreciate the mix of things that I get to do. Um, and I know not everybody has that luxury, um, but for me, that's, that's the key. And then, yeah, doing the, doing a little thing, even riding to, to work in uh, pouring rain is good because <laughs> it, it, just, I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's somehow engaging with nature. Right. And so it's, uh, there's, um, yeah, it's the matter of again. I think everybody's struggling with that, trying to find that new balance. And I and if, and I don't know if there's any plus. I, you know, we just heard today more people quit their job than any other time in you know the history of the U.S. And it's like, I think if people are like, I don't want any of the ICU nurses to quit their job. That's not allowed. <laughs> but but I think people just like reevaluate and go like, yeah, do I really want to keep, you know, do I really want to keep doing this? Are there other things I want to add to my life or, you know, reallocate my, you know, time and effort, um, in a way that's more sustainable. And I think, yeah, I think that's a noble
0: goal trying to figure out. That's the great resignation, right. That's happening. (laughs) Yep. I, I feel like it's the the great reflection, right? Because yeah. our own mortality has been—we've had to all take a really hard look at our own mortality and what what do we want our lives to look like. And so it's a very, you know, natural response. Um, yeah, I
1: lo- I like that the great reflection, and then I think as opposed to everybody just resigning, um, the the reflection and reallocation, right? You know, it's this idea that you know your financial advisor is always about reallocating every few years. And it's like, you know, I think from a personal standpoint, the idea should be like, yeah, this is is a time to sort of, how do I allocate my time? And do I want to reallocate my time? Um, You know, do I want to work less? Do I want to work in a different, you know, know, and do I want to focus my work differently, but then, and do I want to devote more time to, you know, you know, doors, to my family, to travel, to travel, sorry, but you know, those kinds of things. And I, I, I think that's a good thing. I agree with you that um, it's, it's probably better to say the great reflection and a great resignation.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Dr. Telly, for coming on the show. I am so grateful. I'll tag you in the post if anybody wants to reach out to, to Mark. Um, but, uh, I'll close this out by saying, stay safe and stay sane. And we'll see you on the next one.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much.